The Edifice Complex podcast is brought to you by DCM, the drawing specialists, Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software, and Sensor Suite, the future of intelligent buildings. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator friend and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello there. I'm looking forward to this. This is someone who has a net zero home. So this is one of my ambitions in life. So I'm really interested to go down this rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, today's uh, guest is an entrepreneur's entrepreneur. He's a graduate of University of Rochester with uh, both bachelor and a master's in mechanical engineering. And along his journey, he's uh, served as a consulting engineer and expert witness with a focus on carbon monoxide problems and heat exchanger defects. Just a sidebar, he's my carbon monoxide dealer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually deal in carbon monoxide. <laughs> no, his, his alarms, his sensors. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> An important topic. Uh, his, his hands have marks in companies like Fisher Scientific, Eastman Kodak, Bacharach, Testo. He's past chairman and director of Pittsburgh Chapter of ASME, the Association of Mechanical Engineers, and host of Building Science, HVAC Science Podcast. Welcome to the show, President and CEO of True Tech Tools, Bill Swone. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Robert. Happy to be here. So, yeah, we're glad to have you on. Uh, it's going to be a good show today because we want to talk about transitions, mm-hmm. business transitions, which is a passion of all of ours, but and a number of other things. We don't know where this is going to go. It can go anywhere. <laughs> but before we get into the dialogue, Bill, just give our audience an idea of what drives your passion because... You know, there's very few people out there. We most of the passionate people we've had on our podcast already. <laughs> We're yeah. always looking for passionate people. <laughs> what drives yours? I think it was curiosity with mechanical things that came about as I grew up. So I just sort of had that knack or that feeling. And I can remember taking apart a television set, a little black and white TV set on our kitchen table, and my mom going, What is he doing? And my dad going, Shh, quiet. <laughs> like, like he was like, let him. <laughs> yeah, let him. And he was a letter Smart. carrier. My mom was a secretary and our generation was the first to go to college. So it was really interesting for them. So through that college experience, you mentioned energy came up. I was learning about energy, energy conversion, energy transformations, heat transfer. And I think that somehow planted in my brain. And then as I moved on through my time at Backrack, as you mentioned, working in the HVAC market. And it was just really interesting. And then this building performance started coming in. Weatherization is where it really bit me in 1989. And then just moving along in time, it was, it was just sort of this logical progression to put into play what I had learned over the years. And as Adam mentioned, building this accidental net zero house. It wasn't purposefully net zero. It was just going to be a pretty good house. But the last year's worth of data proved it was net zero. So, yeah, oh, God, cool. you've already triggered me. Like, you actually have data to show that it's true. Oh, There's oh, so yeah. much yeah, yeah. showboating going on, right, with no real actual evidence. It drives me yeah. crazy. So we're going to have to go down that. The thing I like about your career, Bill, is that, you know, people go, oh, I'm going to be an engineer, and people think that's it, right? You're going to mm-hmm. be forever doing, like, long equations and spreadsheets. But this, 
you're a good example to someone who say, look, you're an engineer, but there's also, you can be an entrepreneur, you can do this, you can have a podcast, you can have a business. It's not a single mono thing, right? Yeah. And I think it's, there's something I heard lately, if I forgot where I heard it, but it was, it was something like, it takes about five minutes of getting through the fear of doing an activity the first time, a new activity the first time. If you can make it through that five minutes, things start to settle in. You'd be surprised what is inside you and the support you receive from other people too. So Bill was sharing with us before the podcast started that he's going to start playing guitar. So Bill, yeah. those five, first five minutes. <laughs> Maybe you want to actually ask your family about the first five minutes. <laughs> right. Well, that's why I have good headphones, Robert. <laughs> I'm not sure who that's uncomfortable for. <laughs> Fear factor in five. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing because, you know, when you have the brain and you, know, and you can take it on these journeys and like Adam said, I mean, Engineering is such a broad field and you don't get stuck. You don't have to get stuck just doing math all the time. <laughs> yeah, so I'll, I'll take it back to when I was a teenager. I worked in a, a library as a page, basically put away the books, yeah. shelf the books, organize things in the card catalog. This is before digital. Oh, you wow. used to have to slip Dewey. the cards in and then yep, pull the little <laughs> rod out so the cards would drop in in the correct place, shove the rod back in place, remove books that came out of the collection. So doing that one Saturday afternoon, I was on break and I went to the soda machine and put in a dime and got a glass bottle of Orange Crush. Okay, this is all dating me, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and I sat down with my favorite thing to do, which was to read popular science magazines on mm. break. And as I'm outside sitting on the curb outside of the landscaping there in the library, it just struck me that kind of resonated with me that I'd love to be an editor or a writer for this kind of magazine. And it was like, take the technical and it helped people understand it. Mm. And I think I've fulfilled that teenage dream in the last 10 years or so. Again, you've hit on a great point there. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Richard Feynman, the physicist. You know, he used to say, mm -hmm. you can't explain it to someone who's stupid, but I'm paraphrasing here. You don't understand it. So yeah. I think that's the ultimate challenge you ditch do move, if you like of an engineer, if you can take a complex subject that's highly technical and explain it to a non-technical person and get them to understand it, you are a master of communication at that point, in my opinion. It's also, I sometimes, you know, stick back out again, that fear factor. I'm going to teach a new subject area, sort of related or adjacent, but I'm going to force myself to learn it in order to teach it. Yes. So, and, and, deep. and because I, I feel like I exhibit most of the time, high integrity. It's like, I'm going to deliver what I promised to deliver. So I'm going to stick my neck out and do something new and deliver yeah. something new, but in the process, learn something new. So yeah. make an external commitment. I do that a lot sometimes. Yeah, it's like, uh, it's, it's just like getting the reps in, right? You know your subject, but to really teach you yeah. deep and get the reps to the point where they're just instinctive. Yeah. Was it Malcolm Gladwell who said 10,000 hours before you master something? Was that Malcolm? Yeah, said that? From I think it came out in something like that. Yeah. Tipping yeah. point. Yeah. 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 Tipping point. I think that's what it was. And it's interesting because it was the Viennese economist. I think it was smart guy's dad, but smart because most smart guys, they're all, they're all <laughs> Austrian and dead. But uh, uh, what the heck was his name? Gosh, I, I'm just drawing a blank here, unfortunately. But, anyways, he started a long, long time ago in his career. Someone told him that try to learn something new every four or five years. And so by the time you get to be 75 or 80 years old, you have this incredible 
library of knowledge that he carried around on his shoulders. Yeah, and I think it's the concept that resonates in my head, and maybe read some you know amateur psychology things. It's neuroplasticity. Mm. Keep, keep your brain reforming and reconnecting, and it's good. Damn yeah, right. So look, before I, I really do want to talk about net zero homes and residential because yeah, you know, my personal background is commercial and sort of like you know labs things mm-hmm. like that. So residential for me in my career has been something you've avoided. <laughs> And I hate the fact that residential gets short shrift, right? We spend such a lot of time in our homes. I don't even like the fact that I actually have different guides for residential. It's like Robert says, you know, if I blindfolded you and took you in a building, would you know it was residential or not? Mm. Right? Yeah. So yeah. But before we go down there, can we just quickly tell us why you started the podcast? Because I know you've got the True Tech Tools business, right? Right. And then there's a podcast. Was an offshoot of that? What was the story around that? Sure. So there's a really talented, brilliant guy named Brian Orr, O-R-R, who started something called the HVACR School. And you can find HVACRschool.com. And it's grown into just a kind of like a tribe, but it's an open tribe of learning for HVAC. And he had a podcast going from 2015 or so. And that was sort of his thing that he did for a number of years. And then he invited me to join a network he was creating. And he said, yeah, you have a voice. You can do it. I'm like, this is like one of those, when I said support, doing something new, mm, this was yeah. very supportive. He says, you can do it. Yeah. So he gave me some pointers, gave me some advice, and I launched it in September of 2017. The interesting thing that came out of that was about four or five episodes in, I interviewed someone from ResNet, which is the home energy rating systems, Steve Baden, the executive director. And they came back around and said, hey, we'd like to do our own. And then I described, probably a little more complicated than I need to, but I described like all the detail. I call myself Overkill Bill sometimes. <laughs> oh, that, that's a t-shirt. Yeah, that's a, definitely a t-shirt. So I described it all to them, ResNet, and they said, oh, would you like to do it? So now I'm a contract provider. So I do two podcasts, one for ResNet called ResTalk, and then one building HVAC science. The one for TrueTech, it represents things I'm interested in. And I just sort of that collective knowledge from yeah. you know, the 80s through the 20, to, to 20s here. People I know, friends, think, do things I encounter. And I'm now starting to get people come to me and say, can I come on your podcast to talk about whatever? Right. Mm. That's, that's good. So again, enough the path, right, of engineering. Yeah. Something else. Lovely. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you went down that journey of building that home of yours and I, you know, in fact, we actually featured it in the, in yeah, the book, did. right? Yeah, and um, the Thermal Comfort book for residential buildings. I can't remember what the title is. I wrote the book, but I can't remember the title. <laughs> <laughs> but what impressed me was the sort of the methodical approach that you took. It was very practical. Like there wasn't a lot of weird shit going on. Like a lot of these people go down that path, they get into some weird stuff. And I remember like one of the things we would advise our clients is that at some point, that asset, you're going to have to sell it. Mm-hmm. And if it's got weird shit in it, you're going to have to find somebody who's got a weird shit mind to buy it. Yeah. But your house wasn't like that. It was very practical. The stuff that's in there is not voodoo shit, right? Mm-hmm. Like people, you know, when you go to sell that house, it'll be easy to sell it because it's got some great features. It's not crazy, you know, complicated. And But you solved a lot of the problems with the enclosure, right? Right, right. Absolutely. And, and I think because I wasn't building it myself, 
and I needed to have a builder. I needed to have a builder who understood a large part of what I wanted to accomplish with uh, you know, getting control on things, getting control of air, getting control of thermal heat transfer. So I uh, found someone that did, but they happened to work mainly their mode is modular construction, volumetric modular factory construction of modules. And they worked with a factory who also, I think we caused them to stretch a little bit their outlook and their goals. So we put ourselves in a situation where I knew it would be, have to be compromised. Not, not compromised in a bad way, but compromises yeah. would need to be made. And I feel like we got about 85, 90% of what we wanted. We couldn't get everything, but in the end, you know, it had to fit in a budget in order to happen. You can have dreams of doing all kinds of grand things, but if they don't happen, it's just not reality. Yeah. So, so this house, it started off like you're building your dream house, right? And then mm-hmm. as an engineer, you're clearly just, you know, unusually want it done well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so right. it's that. But so it starts off as I want my dream house. I want it done well. And it winds up at the end of the journey being a net zero home. So how? So initially I was enthralled with the idea of passive house. Right. And we actually worked with a passive house architect who was doing residential work. And we got to a point where the components that were being added on were escalating the price. And we felt we were in a, a mode of diminishing returns. And he had a sort of like a higher altruistic value than we did for yeah. our project. So we had to part ways. So we stepped down. Basically, an external insulation was yeah. the, big, the big aspect because then that would have required a rain screen. So more material being used without sort of return in decades, more like a century. Yeah. <laughs> so. I'm sure exaggerating, but uh, benefit from that, right? <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we we looked at passive house designed elements and decided, hey, we're going to keep passive house windows because those do so much better than mm-hmm. yeah. typical windows. We would keep external shading and you know benefiting from the sun and also managing the sun. Put it that way, so that we get a lot of passive effect, so free energy, if you will, and you know moderation of that free energy in the summertime. Did you did you have control of how you could orient the house on the plot? Yeah, we're lucky. We had we bought a three acre plot, and sort of the long axis of the land was going east west. So it was an ideal location to have a, a large south face. And you talk about data. So I, and I do this every time I I have a conversation. I like I'll make little notes like, oh, I should know that. So I do know now that sixty three percent of my fenestration faces south on the house. Nice. Well, Every bit of window is a window glass is accounted for, but 63% south. So I'm deliberately trying to gain solar to have a smaller thermal requirement in the wintertime. Yes. But you also said something important that is to moderate, to be able to moderate it, to be able yeah. to control it. And so, Bill, we're in the process here of doing a, a renovation on an old farmhouse and uh, same thought patterns. And one of the things that we didn't compromise on was windows and shading. So yeah, it's important if you can take advantage of that high-intensity radiation, but it can also be a huge problem. And that's one of the things that we've been harping on forever is that, you know, this concept of overheating spaces due to large window-to-wall ratios and people not putting in performance windows that can deal with the solar loads. Yeah, this is an unintended consequence of passive house, right? It's an overheating problem. And there's just recently been new building code changes in the UK to deal with this, which basically forces you down a full mechanical ventilation solution. Mm. 
and there's noise issues around that. But so what kind of zone are you based in there with this home? Because that's another big factor here, right? Climate zone five. Right. What's that? Is that temperate? Yeah. It's slightly humid. Right. It gets cold. Yeah. So it gets cold, <laughs> it gets hot. So you've got yeah. to deal with everything basically along the... But there's a lot of temperate days in between. And, right. and I think you know, if I looked at my energy usage, I think it was mostly the month of May we had the windows open and we weren't running anything. Yeah, so you get some free riding yeah. months, basically, right. right? So for our listeners, it's my ambition to have my dream house built that actually performs well. So I'm basically using this interview to build brains here. So what facade and enclosure did you wind up with then? So what sort of standard is it? Triple glaze, high-performance windows, presumably, right? Yeah, they're actually they're passive certified windows. We found a local vendor because the Passive House, I think it was a North American Passive House Expo, came to Pittsburgh and a local vendor who was in that business was at a booth and I, I had a booth there next to ours and we, we met him. We had no idea they existed and now our builder uses them on certain projects. But So it was sort of uh, underrepresented. But yeah, triple glazed, argon filled. I adjusted the solar heat gain coefficient up a little right? because mm-hmm. I wanted to, to be warmer to have better thermal comfort in the winter. I didn't want the window walls to be drawing energy off our bodies. There's a balance there, right? There's a balance, which is cool. The mean radiant temperature, which I give credit to Robert. When I do presentations on my house, I have like eight people that I call influencers from my network. And Robert's one of them. (laughs) That's very wise. Very wise. So, but what about the enclosure then? So passive Mm -hmm. certified windows. What about enclosure itself? What did you wind up with there? You had to work with what the factory worked with. So it's two by six on 24-inch centers. Right. They don't do foam in the factory, a spray foam. So it's uh, unfaced bats of fiberglass and through the wall cavity. Right. And then a zip wall for the exterior sheathing. But we went ahead and, and I have a friend of mine who is our energy consultant, who's a passive house train technician, right. BPI, ResNet, everything. He advised that they cover each nail on the zip wall, each fastener head on the zip wall with a sealant. I and that was to the detail. That is use, wow. yeah. So yeah. they they the factory's like, what? And like, no, please. And they did. <laughs> There's one intended benefit, which was just a little bit more air sealing. The unintended benefit was if a moisture gets in there, there's a better chance that it will not cause, you know, expansion of the OSB material underlying. And then uh, an inch and a half of uh, Neopore, which is a extruded polystyrene. Uh, right. I think it's graphite impregnated. But inch and a half was very deliberate so that we could use two-inch siding nails mm-hmm. and put on vinyl siding on the outside, the exterior, and not have to put a rain screen on for additional support for the siding. So we went as far as we could. We didn't go to two-inch to gain a little bit more reduction of thermal bridging, but went with just an inch and a half. But then the little hack with the siding was to go with max runs, 25-foot lengths, and then most of the, the continuous surfaces on the outside of the house were less than 25. So this looks very seamless. It doesn't look so much like siding, mm-hmm. uh, even from a close distance. So. so from a construction methodology point, was that all built on site or was it modular and brought to site? The siding was put on, on site. Right. But everything else was done in the factory. Yeah, so you're just bringing panels in, right? Uh, not panels, it's full volumetric modular boxes. Oh. Yeah, so they were 
about 14 wide, 64 feet long, about 11 and a half tall, four boxes about that size. Cool. That's good because then you get the quality control on the construction because the big issue is quality yeah. control, right? And then how the windows meet yep. the exterior, how the roof meets the exterior. That's where all the problems, that's where 80% of the problems lie. And I remember when we first got to walk through after they set the modules, the, the two modules on the first floor, they touched on one end. 64 feet later, there was a three-eighths inch gap. That was it. Wow. Yeah. And we got really good alignment of the doorways because some of the doorways are along what's called the marriage wall in between yeah. those modules. Did you do any infiltration, exfiltration testing? Afterwards, yeah. But How not before. Happen? Impossible before because yeah. there's so many open spaces. Yeah. What sort of performance did you achieve? Did, you, did it meet your expectation? Our goal was to hit one ACH 50. Right. And we're about 1.1. 1. 1. Well, so, bad. Yeah. yeah. And that's without using aero barrier. That's just pure yeah, caulking, right. vapor barrier. Yeah. Right. Because like aero barrier right. would have been difficult because like coming from the factory, the kitchen cabinets are in place. The mm, toilets yeah. are in place. The uh, tiles in place. The flooring's in place. The paint's up. The windows are in. So you would have had to mask all that again. Yeah. So to, the reason why I asked that is because in this renovation, yeah, that's exactly what we ended up doing. Basically, it was an asbestos crew that came in and sealed up oh. everything. I mean, we, you come in before the spray and I mean, the floor is covered, the cabinets are mm-hmm. covered, everything is sealed up. But we took that house without the windows in, without the pot lights in or the pucks, without baseboard trim in and seal, without flooring in. We took that house from a 460 square inch hole equivalent down to Mm. about 160. Wow. And so we'll do another test because once all of the puck lights are in, everything's all sealed up. So we're hoping to get it. If we can get this house down to like a 2 ACH or 1.8 ACH 50, Mm -hmm. we'll be happy. Yeah. Because it started out like, (laughs) well, think about a 460 square inch. Equivalent hole. That's a massive hole. Yeah, I mean, so there's a great sort of contrast there between a new build where you've got a lot of control over quality and mm. detail and an existing build, right? So it's still both big achievements, right? Because mm-hmm. you're taking it from something like Robert, you took it from something here, which was horrible, to something that's way better, right? Mm-hmm. And then to get to the level where you are, Bill, you've got to have that controlled construction yeah, environment. From the get go. Right? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's what people miss. It's the quality of construction is a massive factor here in building performance. It really doesn't get spoken about very much. The edifice complex will continue in just a moment. Can you find the drawing and supporting documents you need in less than a minute? Now you can with Echo. It's simple. Just type what you're looking for and press enter. Echo knows your building. Speak with a drawing specialist today. Ask about our special offer of painless onboarding plus six months free with Echo. Visit podcast.thedsoffer.com. That's podcast.thedsoffer.com. And now back to the show. And one of the things you talked about in terms of external insulation, what is your design temperature, outdoor design temperature, wintertime? Do you know? I think it's nine Fahrenheit. Okay. What's that in English? What's that in centigrade? Well, all I I know is like we we did a whole bunch of FEA studies like 10, 12 years ago, looking at external insulation and two by four, two by six construction with zero external insulation and then going up in one inch increments up to four inch. 
And so in our, in our study was done at minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the same as. Yep. Minus 40. Tea, yep. Right. And I think, I think it's John Straub or Joe Stebrick used to say minus 40 F C freaking cold. It's the same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everyone can agree. That is effing cold. Yeah, <laughs> that is right. cold. That is, so when you said it's cold, like it gets, that's relative. Like we don't yeah. take the umbrellas out of our drink to like minus 22 or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that, and again, that is a challenge in Canada, right? Trying to do a, a high performance or passive house in Canada is difficult because you're going from minus 40 to plus 40 in some areas, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it's, but, yeah. So, so what, right. we, what we found in the studies was that, you know, once you got into the sort of the two inch at minus 40, two to three inch, that the difference between a two by six and a two by four wall started to disappear. Hmm. Right. And the thermal bridging that was reduced because of the external insulation, the MRTs that we were getting on the inside of the wall was I mean, the numbers were just right there. They're saying like, this is what we should be doing. And that's why I asked about the temperature, right? Because right. at nine degrees Fahrenheit, inch and a half with a two by six wall, like you're, that's a good performing wall for your climate zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And there's no point. You know, this is the other thing. Anything more is overdoing it. It's overbuilding, right? right? Yeah, right. there's a sweet spot that you got to find and that you need engineering skills and knowledge to get to that, right? It's not just a rule of thumb situation. Yeah, yeah it's a yeah. pretty good house. I don't know if you heard yeah. of that concept. So there's actually a book coming out that's starting to ship now called Pretty Good House by Mike Maines and company out of Maine. I love that. Pretty good house. Yeah. It's it's a PGH. There's actually a website and there's like a 20 point checklist to get you thinking in that direction. Yeah. I think it was Green Building Advisor were talking a lot about the Pretty Good House and Martin and his his followers. So everyone, a few people I know that have done what you've done, Bill, of all one of the things they notice is how quiet it is in their house. Yeah. It's actually sealed. I mean, did you find that? Yeah, it is. It's sometimes startling when like a package delivery yeah. person comes up to the front door. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd you come from? <laughs> so, just to geek out a bit more before we go mess with the industry. Uh, so obviously buildings and systems and systems and the facade is the most consequential. So you've optimized facade. What was the roofing solution? It's R40, right. I think, but it was bats from the factory and then blown in once the modules were assembled. Well, and then felt roof on top. Yeah, basically a standard construction roof. Right. So just a well-insulated standard roof, pretty much. Yeah. yeah. With a proper ventilation around it. Right. Okay, cool. So I'm from the UK, wooden roofs are for dog houses where I come from, so I'm still <laughs> not over the fact that people have wooden roofs here. Okay. <laughs> On your multi-million dollar house, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, it's a this is this is well, welcome to Canada. It's a multi-million dollar house. It's made of wood. You know, it's just like the same house standard that your dog used to live in in London. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, even with materials like that, you can achieve a high-performance house, right? This is the point. Right. It's attention to detail. There's so, yeah. so much of it. Yeah. So geeking out a little bit further, then you've optimized like roof, facade, exterior. You've used shading tricks, you've positioned it optimally, sort of north, south, east, west, so it's optimal mm-hmm. for that. So that's pretty much sort of all the biomimicry, sort of passive solutions you can deal. So how did you deal with the ventilation issues and the heat and cooling issues? Sure. One more thing is we were very deliberate about, we have an asphalt driveway, right. but putting the asphalt driveway far away from the house. Yeah. So that that accidental solar gain or the the gain coming off of that. Yeah, the heat island um, off that is... Right, yeah. so that's... And we have a totally separate 
car garage yes. where my electric vehicle will come next year. will be in that garage. So uh-huh. we'll be all electric all the way across. But you want to talk about ventilation. Yeah. This is a big topic at the moment. I'm going to the UK two weeks a month at the moment and ventilation and overheating are big issues right now. Sure. So with the, I guess the overheating aspect we did after we lived here for a few months, we moved in almost as winter set in in 2020. And we had days when actually like in December, it was 30 degrees Fahrenheit outside and it was 80 inside from the solar gain in the windows because of the clear, clear skies and the southern exposure. So we knew we had to get some kind of internal shading, which we got some motorized shades for the big windows in the great room and the other smaller south-facing windows. So we use that to moderate. And we'll also, I think this is correct, in the nighttime in the summer, we'll lift the shades to take advantage of the night sky to draw heat out of that room. And again, work with nature the most we can. You automate the shading? On like no, I haven't yet. No, right. it's uh, just a couple little push buttons that we have to do manually. Right. Yeah, um, people need to understand. I mean, and here in Calgary is a great example because especially the last couple of days, we've been hitting 30 degrees C, which is hot for us here. But it also gets down to 15 degrees C at night. So, you know, the whole design of window openings, whether it's an awning type of opening, these type of things, it all matters. And so we can, you know, as soon as the sun is just about down and we start to see a drop in the temperature, because it drops quite rapidly, mm-hmm. within a couple of hours, we can have the inside of a home down quite comfortably. And then over the nighttime, just keep cooling it down, just, just simply with natural ventilation. Sometimes you have to put in some fans to move some air in the some, but not very often. And uh, then in the morning, we basically button up the houses, like close all the windows down mm-hmm. and just basically ventilation for bathroom exhaust or whatever is necessary. But, and then let the house coast for the most of the day. And um, you can be comfortable without air conditioning. And even in those times and moments where it does get warm, just by elevating airspeed, ceiling fans, that type of stuff, you can deal with the thermal comfort issues. So. This concept of air conditioning has served humanity up until today. <laughs> it no longer is a, it no longer functions. Like it doesn't serve us from a, a whole bunch of different reasons. Sustainability point of view, from climate yeah. changes of consequence point of view, from energy. Like it just doesn't make sense in a modern world. We know how to do it. And if you think about vernacular architecture going back thousands of years, those people knew about it then too. It just sure. took us to get become as smart as they were. Yeah. Rediscover lost arts. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So it told me that natural ventilation and wind towers were a new technology. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, for uh, God's sakes, they were freezing ice back in, if you go back almost 2,500 years ago, you know, where they would have these walls. And on the north side of that wall, they would have shallow water, right? And so night sky radiation, right? Mm-hmm. So, it could be whatever temperature, air temperature outside, but as long as there's a delta T between the water surface temperature and the sky, which there is, they would make ice in the wow. middle of summertime. And then they would store it in these huge vessels, clay vessels, right? Hmm. So, yeah. Putting ideas in Bill's head now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so back to your sort of uh, yeah. ventilation system. So how did that fall out in the end? We have two separate systems, the HAC and the V, right. and they operate independently. And the concept that well, I, I have, I don't think it's original, that ventilation brings in fresh air 
and the HAC conditions the fresh air. So freshness of air may change independently of the thermal comfort of the air. So they're on different controls. Yeah. The um, ventilation system we chose is something somewhat new by a guy named Ty Newell, Build Equinox. It's called a Serve, which is a conditioning ERV. And this is the second generation, the Serve 2. And what it contains is a third of a ton heat pump so that it can transfer energy between the incoming and outgoing air streams and do a little bit of dehumidification in the summertime. Right. So it's very efficient, moves up to 350 CFM. We've got the inlets or the exhausts, if you will, from the house coming from the bathrooms, the closet area, the laundry room, the kitchen. And we have the supplies of fresh air coming to the bedrooms and my office because I'm full of hot air. (laughs) (laughs) I need to be ventilated. (laughs) So you're basically doing heat recovery and some sort of like uh, sort of humidity control. So how humid do you get then? What's your worst sort of like humidity data? Worst, I mean, outdoor, that can be 95% when it's raining or just after a rain. And the interesting thing is the controls in the serve operate on two parameters for my control of ventilation. It's either CO2 or TVOCs. And because it's a newer house, the TVOCs always seem to be up there. So I go with the CO2 number and I keep the aggregate number of CO2 reading below 800 ppm. And then it'll also do like a rebalance kind of thing. It's got dampers inside so it can recirculate the air. It can also do heating and cooling, just like a small AC for the whole house, but with all those ports that I mentioned, the supplies and returns. But it will do some recirculation to utilize the stored fresh air that's in a different room where people aren't. So if there's an upstairs bedroom where it's not really high concentration CO2, let's mix a little bit of the house around and try to drop that average before we even bring in fresh air. How do they know that? Are they monitoring CO2 in all rooms or are they monitoring... There are uh, separate monitors, but I chose to go with just the central monitor. So it sips the air. It does a cycle. So it's an aggregate. What's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's all aggregate. Yep. Okay. So over time, as the TVOCs sort of dissipate in the environment, then the system actually, your recirculation and mixing here gets better. Just so people understand, TVOC is total volatile organic compounds. So the acronyms, right? So just on that, that's fascinating to me because. You know, we see the whole the whole league thing, you know, two weeks, the TVOCs go down and they sort of flatline. But you could actually do a real case study of, you know, I've got mm. a new home. How long does it actually take for these mm. things to go down to a low level, right? I'd love to know the answer to that. Yeah. And the great thing is the ever since the serve was installed, it's yeah. collecting historic data. So anytime yeah. it runs, the sensors are active. So I, I have data going back to July of 2020 God, when the house great- was unoccupied data book there in like, you know, yeah. almost all like visualizations, but like, this is the real skinny, right? I built this house. This is how long it took to get it under control. This is how long it took for the VOCs to become negligible. And the other thing is, it's one of Robert's favorite subjects and now mine is IEQ. So, mm-hmm. you know, we, we tend to control typically down your temperature, but it sounds to me like you've got a hierarchy of set points here, right? You've got temperature, you've got CO2, you've got TVOC, right? There's a hierarchy where something can take precedent over another set point, right? Well, again, it goes back to 
give me fresh air and I'll condition the fresh air. Yeah. Mm. So there, there's a split in my mind. There's probably other splits in my mind too, but that's for only murders in the building. Yes. That's, that's a very, very clever. Yeah. So that's the fresh air system. And it's got MERV 13 filters in for both the internal circulation as well as the external air. So, and they're ind- independent little 10 by 20, two inch filters, which I you know, check periodically. And then there's the heating and cooling system, which is, it's Canada made. Actually, it's made by Detson up in Montreal. So, because they deal with lower load homes. Right. And they also sort of the, the dealer of choice for our builder. They right. were familiar with using them, installing them. And I, you know, I studied up and I was like, yeah, this is good. And they had just come out with their cold climate heat pump that went down to minus 22. So that was great. It's sort of like maybe it's their hyperheat, you know, like the other brands out there. But it, we've gone through two winters now with the Detson system. And it, it sized out. We, of course, did a low calculation. We actually did a passive house planning package to begin right. with the PHPP. But that was when we were, were dealing with passive design. Then we went away from passive design, but then reiterated the PHPP to see where we were and then did a manual J. I had a professional do a manual J, a pro do a PHPP. And they both landed about two tons of heating and cooling. A little bit more need demand on the heating, a little bit less on the cooling side. And I also felt like we also went, you know, we played it safe and have a 10 kilowatt resistance backup strips, which is actually three tons of heating. I was going to say, so I was going to ask you to margin of safety and that's it, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, so we're totally backed up with resistance. Yeah. The interesting thing was we had a failure in the first winter use of the heat pump. Basically when the reversing valve kicked in, it was a failure loss of charge. And I only detected it because I had just installed an electrical monitor and I saw really unexpected high electrical usage it was because the resistance was on. We discovered that, got it repaired, got the system charged up again, and then switched off the resistance. And since February of 2021, we've been running with heat pump only and made it you know, through minus 10 degrees Fahrenheit nights, that kind of thing. Nice. People need to put that into perspective. So two tons. Yeah. And what's this area of the home that, that's conditioning, um, right? It's 2,900 on the living, but we also condition the basement, which is another 1,600. So about 44, 4,500 square feet. Yeah. Right. So there, that puts it into perspective. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the ratio there is typically, <clears throat> that's a pretty high ratio, 2,200 per ton. Yeah. Usually like 500, 700, 1,000 maybe. Yeah. yeah. So that's an indication of performance of the house, right? And the envelope yeah. is stuck in there. Wow. Yeah, and one of the landmines when people don't do the calculations, mm-hmm. right? And they just size it on rules of thumb and just how bad it can get, you know, with right. oversized equipment where that's not the case at all for yourself. Yeah. So oversized equipment, you get on off control, which is no control and inefficient. Yeah, mm. just the downsides are horrendous and everyone yeah. has them in their homes, right? <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> I do want uh, to mention one more IAQ topic. Yeah. Yeah. It's radon. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. So we, yeah. we built with radon resistant construction, which was a passive system to draw from basically a French drain that's on the inside of the footer for the basement walls, foundation walls under the slab. And it didn't take care of the job. So we had to add a radon fan 
We're right. getting, and again, for perspective for listeners, the US EPA says four picocuries per liter or less. Forget about the measurement unit, but just four or less. We yeah. were running upwards of 18, 20, 30. Wow. Wow. Um, however, when I put the radon fan in, installed it, and I have monitors, of course, for this, yeah. it dropped from 22 <clears throat> to 0.6 in 11 hours and it stayed there. Wow. So it's, it's a, and radon is a insidious, killer, if you will. It can cause yeah. lung cancer. Second leading um, cause of lung cancer. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I just want to like, get that public service <laughs> message out there. Be aware of radon detectors. We sell them. Other people sell them. They're really inexpensive. Even if you get the tests from the local big box or hardware store, pay attention to radon. You just never know. Your neighbor could have it. You could have it. There are radon maps for the world, but yeah. it's, it's a good idea to test. Yeah, Bill, you're going to get me onto a soapbox here. I won't have time to talk about business, but, you know, Canada Health really didn't respond to radon issues in Canada until about seven or eight years ago. Wow. And yet we knew back in the 80s that there were hotspots in Canada and we were trying to draw attention to it, and but nobody was listening. And it wasn't until recently that Health Canada stepped up and said, you know, okay, we, we have a problem. We ought to, ought to address it. And what's unfortunate about that is that all that time went by mm-hmm. where people got exposed to it and developed lung cancer, right? Even though we, you know, anyways, I mean, we can yeah. have a whole story on this one, but as another sort of service, and again, I mean, your company, TrueTech, has all kinds of these very useful instruments. And the two things that, you know, we pay attention to, carbon monoxide, mm-hmm. and uh, you guys have the CO2 expert instrument, which is... I mean, I, they're bulletproof. I, yeah. I love them. I expect them and I use them in my own place. And then, of course, the radon stuff. So, okay. Yes. Business. Switch. <laughs> Pivot. Transitions. You know, we all have had in our past as entrepreneurs, we have that illness, you know, where you buy a business, start a business. And then at some point you have to realize that you're not going to live forever and or the asset has increased in value. And you just want to sort of put brackets around that financial strength and you got to make a move. What's your plan? <laughs> sure. So what color is your parachute? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> That's actually, uh, again, the overkill bill. I have two parachutes. Adam. <laughs> so I've been like a, actually one person gave me another t-shirt phrase, but Bill loves people, business and science. And sort of like in that order, or people, science, and business in that order. I think it's true. I think it's an accurate characterization, but I do love business. I've always wanted to run my own business from that time I was a teenager, but it just, things came together about you know, 13, 14 years ago for me to do so. So I've, I've been a student of business without a, getting a business degree, but learning from others, observing things, doing a lot of reading. And one of the, the books that I'm, I'm sure... Most listeners have heard of it, Michael Gerber, The E-Myth mm. Revisited, where he talks about working on in your business. Think yeah. of it as a franchise model. And then there's another turning point, which I kind of got from my friend Brian Orr, is thinking of your business like you got to make a decision. Is it going to be an asset or a legacy? Will it continue on well beyond you? Or is it an asset that you're building to sell, you know, to either to employees or to a buyer that comes along? I think the beauty of it is the concept of working on and not in your business allows you to attain, you move along the same path to build an asset value as you do a legacy value. 
With the legacy value, however, you have to add that additional component of succession and transition and uniform transition. So what we've got going on here is I have a co-owner, Eric Preston, and I have a son, Bill Jr. And we've talked it over and then this is okay to say in public because everybody in our company knows it. Everybody in our family knows it. And they, so that the transition plan is I work for about another four years. And my company knows that so that, you know, employees aren't thinking like there isn't some surprise that happens down the road or, <laughs> you know, and I can talk about things in that context. Like yeah. I want to do this because. Yeah. And then Eric would stay on for about another five years after that. He's a little bit younger than me. And then my son would take over after that. So that's the plan. Yeah. And I love these, the thought process that goes into it because in my circle of friends, there was a business that was owned by three people. One of them was the major shareholder. He had like 55 or 60% ownership. And the company did extremely well. It grew very, very fast, very, very profitable. And he ended up dying. And the other two shareholders didn't have the finances to buy out the shares at that value from the estate. And fortunately for that group, the deceased had a brother who was also very business savvy and he kind of parachuted himself in and helped them make that transition so that the estate ended up with the value that the shares were worth without putting a whole bunch of financial burden on the other two shareholders. And, you know, these are the types of things that you don't plan for, but they can happen. And I think in those cases, and in your case, and Adam, in your case as well, when when the employees know that there's a transition plan in place, there's some stability and there's mm-hmm. confidence in the organization. Yeah. There's not a whole bunch of questions about what's going to happen. And not only in terms of those things that we anticipate, but also those things that if something like someone right. dies, because that is, that's life, that's reality, shit happens. And when management and ownership have plans for that, then there's a lot of confidence that's in the hands of the employees. One other thing we had to do, like we had first kind of sort of a short checklist. And there's there's also a local entrepreneurs group in Pittsburgh that's run by the University of Pittsburgh. We belong to it and we got some consulting time from their family business as specialists. Mm. Uh, had a meeting with us and talked about various topics and things to keep in mind. And one of them was insurance, the, the buyout insurance, like you talk yeah. about. So we put that into place last year, perhaps a little bit late, but it's it's in place. And we also started family meetings about two years ago, right. since it is a family business with my son in it. My wife is retired from it, but it's, you want to make sure that, you know, and I'm the majority shareholder, that there's an understanding of the large parts of the context of what mm-hmm. we're doing. And the family meetings only happen once a year. So it isn't really burdensome. And it's like, just like kind of catch up to where we are. The other thing we did, and this was maybe about four years ago, we put a board of advisors into place and it's been called, some people call it like a president's board. So it's not a formal fiduciary board. Like they can't fire me. (laughs) I, I didn't want that, but it's sort of like, it's our attorney, our accountant, our lawyer, a big customer of ours, a big vendor of ours, you know, just sort of touching on sort of all the elements that make up in the externals that could influence our Mm. business, but bring the externals together quarterly, usually through Zoom or something, and just kind of own up to a report to them. So I feel responsible to tell them what's happened in the last quarter. 
Yeah, we yeah. we call that the kitchen cabinet in the UK. It's your cabinet. Oh, yeah. I love that. Like, okay. You know, and huh. they ask you the awkward questions that employees might be frightened to ask you, right? Right. And it's the preparation that leads up to that that yeah. allows me to inspect the business in a different way. Yes. And again, if I have to teach what's gone on, I have to know the subject matter of what's yeah. gone on better, which helps me out as a business. I, I liken it to like going to the dentist annually. Yeah. You, you really need to do that. You could skip it. You could probably get by. But if you force yourself to do that kind of thing, it can change your framework. It forces you into a different gear. We had a business that we financed and provided some operational direction. And prior, just a year before the U.S. housing market crashed, and we went in to meet with the operations team, and I had a sense that something was not right. I mean, people were, people had three or four mortgages. The vacancy rates were incredibly high. The major shareholders of the residential housing building were liquidating shares at as fast as the stock market would let them get rid of them. I said, there's something going to hit here and it ain't looking very good. And I remember going in and there was the three of us went and had a meeting with our operations team and said, let's get your top clients on the phone. I want to know what they have in inventory. And after those meetings, I just looked at our operations guy and said, we have retained earnings in the business, but... I would say in the next six months, you're not going to have any purchase orders mm. and you have to make a decision, yeah. and, you know? And yeah. so those hard facts come up in those kinds of discussions and they're tough to deal with for some businesses, but that is reality. And like you said, like you could maybe, you know, put on your rose colored glasses and say, mm. uh, yeah, well, maybe we'll get more orders or maybe we won't. The reality is when the business financially is strong as it is right now, but it could change in six months and not for the best. You could finance it for a certain period of time, but after that, you're done. I mean, yeah. what you're talking about there is forecasting, which is something in our sector people mm-hmm. are horrific at. Right? Right. <laughs> I just did month yeah. to month. I look up, oh, a purchase order's arrived on my desk. Awesome. You know, that's about as far as that forecasting goes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it behooves you to bloody look, and look forward, right? But the concept yeah. here, the key concept we're really talking about here is separating the functions of management and ownership, right? Mm-hmm. This is where small businesses really get confused. It doesn't mean you have to manage it. The person that should manage that business should be absolutely the best person in the market to do it, right? Right. You know, the days, certainly when I started back in back in the day, in the early 80s, it was what I called a strongman business model, the big man, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there was a big man at the top. We've been there forever. He looked like I do now. And uh, he was there because he was the biggest, baddest, oldest MFR in the place, right? And uh, the problem with that was all the power was concentrated around them, the ownership. And, you know, mm-hmm. if that person gets run over by a bus, everyone's got a problem, right? So yeah. you've got a medium, small size enterprises need to really get into the separation of ownership and management and leadership and, you know, really plan for, like, what happens if someone wins a lottery and just doesn't come in on Monday? Right. You got to be deliberate about it. And yeah. that, that's another thing that part of my mental succession plan is to you know, get in place things that will mitigate or minimize risk yeah. and also build something that's substantial before I exit. And I don't mean just substantial in terms of sales, but in substantial in terms of process. So we just started like on the 6th of July, implementing a system called the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's EOS are the words. It's a system that's been developed over the last 20 years 
by the observations of a guy who's written a number of books on it, Gino Wickman. He's observed hundreds of businesses and he looks for where they succeed, where they fail. It's a total operating system. Our first session was to go in and to throw out the org chart and then to have our leadership team, as it existed in that room, redefine the critical roles that we have as a business. But do it, keep it simple, 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 simple. Always it's hammered in with the system. Three to seven of anything, you get much more than that and you can't work on it. You could park anything more, but keep it down to as minimal as you can. So we've started along that road and I'm very, very excited where it could lead us. And it gets into things like even how to run a meeting, how to stick to an agenda. And it's got my leadership team now reading books on how to be better at this and getting us all on the same page. I'm seeing a lot of enthusiasm and excitement. And I think we struck on it at the right time. And hopefully I'll listen to this podcast in two years and go, yes. (laughs) No. It's a key question for you, Bill. This is a question that any owner manager has to Mm -hmm. go. Can you go? Can you leave and just like, let it be? I think I can because I'm going to become a rock guitarist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, actually, that is a big Uh, joke aside. To be able to walk away from something, you need to walk towards something else. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's very true. And uh, that's something that's not missing. If you've been an owner-manager working at a high-intensity level most of your life, then all of a sudden that stops. That's where meltdowns and heart attacks happen, right? Right. And like even in our first session with this, we bring together issues and then rank the issues, combine them, put them on a a parking lot sheet if they're not things that need to be addressed right now. And then go back and take all the hot issues and assign them to people. I had no assignments at the end of that. For that me, that's a, how, that's a good meeting as far as I'm concerned. There's a message there for you, Bill. Yeah, right. <laughs> Best meeting ever. In fact, one of the people in the meeting said, Bill, this, all this happens. What are you going to do? <laughs> I'm stand here and look awesome. That's my role. Yeah, right. <laughs> You know, you mentioned the book, Michael Gerber and the Entrepreneurial Myth, E-Myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, he wrote a series of books after that. And right. I, you know, for those that are listening to this podcast in the future, highly recommended book. And to this day, you know, when I think about like for the tradespeople particularly, and we've all experienced it here, and even in this project that we're on now, we have probably, I would say 80% of the tradespeople have no transition plan in place. And the businesses that, Mm -hmm. and those are like one to three man operations. And the painter in particular, you know, she's got a business advisor. She definitely understands working on the business instead of in the business. And she's running, you know, a 12, 14 person crew. And she's just managing those crews. They're doing the work. She's a journeyman painter. That's Mm -hmm. her trade, but her heart is in the business. And so the difference is, is between the two different trade groups, those that are in the business and those that are working on the businesses, their sense of security, you know, the carpenter gets up in the morning and he knows he can work the tools. And that's what gives him security where our painter, her security is on our share value. Yeah. How do I get my share value up? You know, and what's the transition plan? So when I decide to retire, I've got a nice big chunk of change that I can live on for the rest of my life nicely. Right. Made it worthwhile. Yeah. I made it worthwhile. And, Completely two different people. And so the, the message for those that are listening to this, and it doesn't matter whether you're in a trade business, an engineering business, manufacturing, or whatever, you really have to ask yourself, where does my sense of accomplishment and security come from? And if you like 
and this is Michael's story. If you like being in the business, then be in the business, but don't try to do both. Be the technician or be the business guy, but to, yeah. to do both is just going to split you apart. It's going to split your families apart. It's going to wreck your business. Hire somebody to do the business if you want to own a business. But that's interesting. You just said where like the ladies are interested in like the business and the guy or the people working for are interested in, in their work. Mm. Those two things are completely aligned for the same outcome, which is a successful business, right? Mm-hmm. That's the key. I think you got yeah, to get totally. everyone aligned. Yeah. working towards the big goal, but they have their roles within that, right? And that's in, where, I think that's the difficult bit, right? That's where the art and skill has to come in. And once your business has been running for a while, you should be able to step back, way back, and understand actually how it works. And that's what I focus on a lot. And I, when I have discoveries there, I share them with my team. Like, oh, this relates to this, or we can track this and then know about that. And then with this EOS system, we're going to try to get it down to a few metrics on a scorecard and look yeah. at them at least monthly and perhaps even weekly and watch the trends that, that yeah. are going on there so that we have time to pivot if it's necessary. Pivot towards or pivot away. Yeah. Like Adam yeah. said before, to go towards something, you have to go away from something. And yeah. that's also saying no a lot more, which is difficult for a lot of people, maybe all of us here. But saying no is yeah. a difficult thing. We're coming up on yeah. time, but there's one thing I want you to sort of consider as well. One thing that gets my gears grinding is the loss of knowledge that is leaving the business at the moment with all the baby mm-hmm. boomers going. Yep. And the horrific state of college and, and university education in terms of preparing engineers and tradespeople. There is a real gap in the how-to, mm-hmm. right? For example, I'm a graduate engineer. I started work at WSP. Do you know how hard it would be to get someone to tell you, sit down with you for half a day and show you exactly how to size a pump? Mm. They just throw that shit out. You say, hey, you work it out. You've got a degree, you know. So <laughs> there is a gap in the how-to. I mm-hmm. have this sort of like among the many megalomaniac plans in my head. One of them is to set up a DAO, Distributed Autonomous Organization, of people who can deliver the how-tos in a succinct way mm-hmm. so that a graduate who, let's face it, who's got time even to train anyone nowadays, right? So there needs to be a place where graduates can get the how-to, and you would be someone that I would argue is a great transitional role from someone stepping away from a full-time work. So there's Mm -hmm. a gap between I'm full-time and then I'm like sitting on a beach all day, every day. It's the middle where the industry needs to suck that knowledge out of you and deliver it to the next generations, right? So That's I guess I sort of grapple with in my head all the time at the moment. I'm really sort of like, because I see these gaps. I've got young children and one of my kids is an engineer. Mm-hmm. Really struggling with like getting someone to sit down with them and just explain it to her. They're all stressed out. Oh, just work it out. Here's a book. You work it out, right? Uh, she's designing spacesuits for Christ's sake. You know, so <laughs> she's a mechanical wow. engineer. You know, she's working on this little valve. But if it's like that there, it's like that everywhere, right? Sure. It's endemic. I think doing things like this, having these kind of conversations openly and sharing them, and then just all the people that that I see, especially in HVAC, some really talented, skilled people doing YouTube videos, breaking things down, explaining it. There's a a handful of Facebook groups that are very welcoming to really basic questions. Mm -hmm. And then people are creating little guides and handouts 
in apps and things like that to help each other. And they're doing it free of charge just to share. One thing I'm doing too, very deliberately is this University of Pittsburgh, they have a business class where the students take on a project at an actual business in the area. They did that for us at True Tech. I'm now volunteering to be a coach to students who are doing that for other businesses. And I'm going to learn a lot and they're going to learn some things from my experience. Yeah, that's so that's, that's a great transition that. That, that I'm looking forward to as I start starting to, uh, to clear that path and, and that potential I could do. You're in a, you're in a good spot at the moment. So look, yeah. we're coming up on time. We normally have a, just a couple of quick fire questions at the end to our guests. Okay. So I'll go first because <laughs> I've got to ask you, it's not a quick fire question. What was your final sort of construction cost on your net zero home just to circle that, complete sure. that circle? What did it come out over? Like what you thought it would, what metrics? Um, it came out a little bit above. When they finished the design and we had to sign the sheet that said, this is called the hard card, which they call it for the factory, because they've got to start work and yeah. they're going to order materials and there's no going back. There is going back, but with cost to, yeah. to make change orders. It came in about at budget. It was somewhat surprising. Like we didn't know what we were doing when we got into this. <laughs> the total cost of the builder was 770K. That's not bad, actually, for the sort. Yeah, no, no, that's yeah, yeah. And then we need, but we needed to land the solar, the septic, and the well. We're all separate from that. Yeah, that's that's not bad, actually. I do you know what? If I could get that for some something, I'd buy that tomorrow. I'd write a check right now for that. You cannot yeah. get that where I live. Not mm-hmm. at all. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, wow, congrats. So, Bill, I mean, there's so many questions I have for you, <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to sort of stick with the business, and I, as a parent that you are, if you were, you know, addressing parents that had kids Mm -hmm. that showed even an inkling, delivering papers when they're kids, cutting lawns, painting fences, whatever, what advice would you have for those parents of kids who are showing entrepreneurial traits besides therapy? (laughs) I guess um, dialogue with, ask them why it interests them. Why do you like this? Mm-hmm. And try to, you know, do you use the five whys technique, Kaizen, to get down to really what's at the root of that? But in a, a coaching parental kind of way, not that you're trying to change anything, but help them understand. And sometimes, you know, just like this conversation, having a conversation helps you understand yourself better. Mm, yeah. yeah, that's yeah. good advice. Absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah I think that's a, that was a good out. There's so many sort of like knowledge bombs you dropped here. I'll try and list. I've been making a note of the books and that. I'll reference them in the show notes. Cool. If people want to pick them up. Bill, thank you for coming on. That was awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you so out. much. You're welcome. <laughs> I want it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Great, mate. So thanks very much for coming on. And uh, yeah, thank you very much for all you do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you guys for what you do. And uh, cheers to be here. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side. Blue Rhythm Commissioning Software. Blue Rhythm is the commissioning software I've been looking for. Most projects I consult on suffer from poor information and document management. Frankly, it's just chaos out there. Blue Rhythm removes this chaos. It is a secure, always available cloud solution designed to work on any computer, tablet, or smartphone. Their Android and iOS apps allow seamless transition between online and offline work. But what I like most about Blue Rhythm is their painless and fast onboarding process. 
Our team will bring all your existing forms and checklists into Blue for you, or you can use or adapt their pre-built, pre-functional and functional performance test sheet templates. But it's more than that. It enables collaboration, automation, and easy planning and project management for all your projects. Blue Rhythm provides amazing support from a team that really understands your industry. To find out more, go to bluerhythm.com or call country code plus one, 612-460-8305. Also, you can hear from Blue Rhythm President Andy Martin on episode 26 of the Edifice Complex podcast. Robert, Robert, we there yet? I'm bored. <laughs> and I'm, well, it's hard to believe, but the future has finally arrived in Canada. How's that then? Well, smart remote building and equipment management is now available from Sensor Suite. Go on. Sensor Suite, yep. They're an innovator of smart building technology. We like them. They can monitor, control, and optimize anything in your building, saving you time and energy. You mean Sensor Suite are moving Canadian buildings into the 21st century? Yeah, I know. Another hard thing to believe, but they're doing it and they're saving owners money with efficiency gains. Okay, I'm in. How do I find out more? Got to go to sensorsuite.com or call 1 855 773 6767. And also check out the July 2020 episode of the NFS Complex podcast and listen to Sensor Suite CEO Glenn Spry. And now back to the show. Yeah, you know, Adam. I mean, we ask our guests for short answer or short, quick questions. And I, I think one of the things that is of the greatest value is the network that we have as people. Yeah, absolutely. The career that you build, in part, the success is going to be based on the network. And we have been really fortunate between you and I, our network is, how do you describe it? We have had some amazing people on and Bill is one of those guys that's in our network and he is a huge asset to uh, industry, obviously to his family, his, his colleagues, his employees, but he's part of the network and uh, he's tapped in. And, and what I like about him is, hey, well, he's an engineer. He, he's got that engineering brain, but he loves the business. He loves people. He loves the science. He's a well-rounded individual. One of the things I found when I was employing engineers a lot, they felt, I don't know if it was naturally how engineers are or the way the system sort of manages them, but they feel they can't get out of those guidelines. Mm. You know, I'm an engineer, I'm an engineer, that's who I am, that's what I do, you know, nothing else shall be ever. You know, and what I like about Bill is a great example, you know, he's an engineer, yes, and that's not going to change, but he's also yeah. an entrepreneur, he's a business owner, he's a podcaster, he's an educator, soon to yeah. be a guitarist, you know. Engineering is not restrictive. It's actually quite a, it's a big field, right? There's different fields of engineering and there's different businesses you can go into with engineering. You are not restricted in any way. In many ways, you're actually having an advantage because to be an engineer means by definition, you've got some sort of big brain going on, right? So it's a, not a message that's put out there. Yeah, it's it in of itself does not define who you are. It's, it's the ticket out of that definition. Yeah, it's a ticket to a rich, interesting life is what it is, right? It is, totally. You know, you've hit the nail on the head there because what people do is wrap their identity up into it, like I'm a doctor, mm-hmm. I'm an engineer, I'm a lawyer. But yeah. life is more than that, right? Yeah, totally. And I think engineering, particularly, has so many different fields. It is so interesting, man. But going back to network, we've had a lot of bills. We should have the best of the bills. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great, actually. The best of the bill episodes, yeah. Get them right. all on. Talking about network, so it was interesting. I was um, having one of my regular sort of like downloads with the CEO of ASG, 
he's a young guy saying he's a podcast alumni actually a very accomplished guy and he was interesting we were talking about staff retention because you were at this covid thing now right and there's a lot of people like move you see on linkedin everyone's moving job you know i'm doing this i'm doing that and we were just talking about you know what does it mean to be a sector leader in our business right in ASG. So one of Sage's definitions, well, not the only definition, was we want the people who lead, I don't know, our facades business or our fire engineering business, you know, to be a name in the industry. Mm. And one of the ways he judges that, and I never thought of it this way, is how big is your network? Do people come to you or do you go to people, right? Yeah. So ASG, a big firm, they have a full-time recruiter on staff. He says some people who, who lead certain parts of the business in ASG are so such big names, they don't need that recruiter because people are throwing resumes at them and we're working one way. So again, here's one of the many definitions. So, I mean, it's implied that you're great at your job, you're clever, you know what you're doing, you can deliver. But also layered on that from Sage's point of view was you have a network of influence. Yeah. And people are attracted to you as a leader, which means the business does well because you're there you attract it, and then you are enough of a leader that you're over yourself and you're about creating leaders below you who can take your job, right? So, yeah, it's, it's a real meta thought, right? It's a real, like, totally. thought. I never thought of it that way before, right? Because, again, I, I get into the engineering weeds. I want to have to Do I have to worry about you? But that's, that was such a meta thought. I really like that. Like, yeah. Well, and I think one of the things, and that's what travel does, right? Yeah. And share and willing to share your knowledge. And by willing to sh- share your knowledge without an expectation of return and developing that network, you're building that basket, that weaved yeah. together, sewn together basket of knowledge, and you become part of it. And there's, you know, this whole concept of reciprocity, right? When you give freely without expecting anything back, people give you shit, lots of it, you know, because you're not there. You're just part of the network. And when you contribute in a positive way, people are happy to help you out. And then that's really, you know, if you think about Adam, the Edifice Complex podcast is it's a network that we've built. We're building. Yeah, it's strangely. So I never thought of this at the time, but it's turning to be a net. There's a network effect with it for sure. Yeah. And there's an educational fit with it, hopefully. And it's just interesting. It is, it's a form of soft power, I suppose, in a way, if you think about it. But just that, the thought of like hiring a leader for your for a business sector, one of the criteria being a network of influence, mm. them words would never have fallen out of anyone's mouth 15 years ago. Right. <laughs> totally. You know, that, that is a new way of looking at it. It's a new way of thinking about it. Because the goal is, if you're leading a team, or a business sector or a business, one of the questions you ask yourself is, how can I create careers that people come in and have and they are having such a good time and they are growing so well, they don't want to leave? Mm-hmm. You're creating yeah, yeah, yeah. this playing field for people where they can be as much as they want to be, right? It's okay just if you want to be the person who comes in, does a job and goes home, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that, but yeah, own it. And if you want to really grow and stretch, create that framework for people to do that so they don't feel they have to job hop to get that right yeah that, yeah. that firm that can nail that opportunity set is going to win right yeah. for sure and our guest like bill he has a huge network of his own creation and again sharing that knowledge with his own podcast 
but him volunteering at the university for entrepreneurs, you know, that's him yeah. giving back as he received and gave. And, and you're right, the network. And you're right, like 15 years ago, someone would have, wouldn't have been a criteria. No. I think one of the things that, why that's so valuable, Adam, actually, I, we could write a whole book on this whole story. I is that because so many things are triggered in my, my head. <laughs> yeah. Well, you think about the value, right? What did it take to build a network? So, you know, I think a year or two younger than me, but we're, you know, sort of in that 50. Well, well, I'll this first. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you put a value on the network that you've created? And so when you bring somebody that's new into the business, you know, let's just say they're whatever, they're 30, 35 years of age. Yeah. You know, if they've not at that point developed a network, well, that's a completely different individual than somebody who's the same age, but has a network already started. Like he's got the yeah. ball rolling or she's got the ball rolling. And just through their circle of influence that she has or he has, that they're building this mass. And it really, it's, it is mass. It's a, yeah. It is a form of energy. And, it is you know, when you get... Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, actually, yeah. thinking like, we use the word entrepreneur. We've been throwing that around in this episode. Mm. And there was a time sort of in the 80s where you were a professional like an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer, right? And I think back then, professionals looked down on entrepreneurs. Oh, they're salesmen. They're, you know, they're hucksters. But society or over time, these two things have merged, right? And there's a 50-50 Venn diagram there now. In the 80s, you could just be a lawyer and charge a rate or an engineer and charge a rate. Now you can't. You've got to add more than just being an engineer. Yeah, You've got to right. provide insight, leadership. You've got to be entrepreneurial. You've got to sell your services. So this whole entrepreneur thing has really crashed into the professions. That's been a factor that is sort of under underappreciated, I think, in terms of what's going on. Because entrepreneurship yeah. now, it ain't just good enough to be a great engineer anymore. Yeah. That is not enough, period. Right? Yeah. But it used to be plenty, right? So well, yeah, when that's right. When the business only yeah. needed somebody's brain yeah. to crunch numbers, you know, that was and it. come up with concepts. But nowadays, it's way more than that, and that's because yeah. of the connectivity that we have, the intellectual connectivity that there's no boundaries to it. But like connectivity, there's a fluidity to it, and yeah. those that are fluent in communication and developing that network. That's as strong as any skill set in terms of being able to crunch numbers or do design work. And Absolutely. when you can marry those two together, that's a pretty powerful combination. And we've seen that in, in many of our guests. There's no doubt about it, right? You look at some a lot or pretty much all the guests, there's a skill stack there, right? It's like engineer, entrepreneur, you know, writer or a yeah. podcast. Yeah, there's, there's this layers on them, which make them the accomplished people they are, right? They yeah, haven't just... Sure. So I'm an engineer now. Phew, I'm good. <laughs> you know, that is the ultimate trap. You think, oh, I've got here now. I can just kick back. And that is such a trap, a personal thinking trap, right? Yeah, it really is. Yeah. Okay, man. Well, God, this has been a pretty profound podcast. I started out just like <laughs> zero home and we're getting philosophical again. But uh, yeah, that was, that was good, man. So let's leave it there because I, I, I'm really thinking about, there's something there about entrepreneur. We maybe need a podcast about entrepreneurship in our business to think about that. Who might come on and do that? But if it's anyone knows anyone, message us. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> anyway, mate, that was a good one. Take care. All right, Adam. Always a pleasure again. Bye. Cheers, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. 
Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time.